Good morning. Today's reading is Luke 6, 12 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Aphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It was just over a year ago now, and my daughter said something that kind of just made my heart sink, okay? I was putting her to bed, and that's usually actually when some of the deepest conversations happen for two reasons. One, she'll say anything to get me from leaving the room um, to delay bedtime as long as absolutely possible. And two, I'm just realizing that she's going to sleep. Sometimes it's that last little push to kind of say what's on her heart, you know, before she has to spend the night with it, right? And what she's thinking through. And we ended up having this conversation that was pretty heavy, and it eventually came down to her saying just how disappointed she was. This was a little over a year ago. How disappointed she was that she couldn't play soccer with the boys. And I said, well, sure you can, sweetie. You know, you can, you can play soccer with the boys. You're just as good as the boys. You're probably better than a lot of them. And uh, she said, no, Dad, you don't understand. They said, I can't play with them. This is preschool. I can't play with them because I'm not good enough because I am a girl. Oh, I've never come so close to punching a preschooler. Like, <laughs> just thinking about my, my daughter in that moment, like, just experiencing that. And, and, you know, in the midst of that, she has tears coming down her face, and I've got tears welling up in mine. And... Um, you know, I tried to say a lot of the things that a good dad should say that I genuinely mean, like, you are good enough, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're strong, you're a really good soccer player, you could do great. Um, but at the end, all I could really come to say at the very final bit was, sweetie, I'm really sorry. This isn't the way it should be. 
And no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, at some point in your life, you felt the pain of exclusion. And exclusion is not only painful, sometimes it can be scarring. I mean, it was just a couple weeks ago, you know, Ava brought it up again, thinking about soccer on the playground at kindergarten. And I was like, why don't you go play? And she's like, no. And I was like, is this still because? And she's like, yeah. So just wrestling through that exclusion. You see, amidst, this is something really important to us as human beings. Amidst our deepest desires as human beings, something so central is feeling like we belong. Feeling like we belong is so central to our human joy and happiness. We want to belong. We want someone to want us there because we genuinely bring them joy. And when we don't have that space to belong, it can be soul-crushing. But when we do have that space where we belong, it can bring a deep joy that radiates with life. And so we come to a really crucial question this morning as we come to the text. Jesus is giving his second sermon on display here in Luke. And he's going to detail out what's central to his community. And right out the gate, he answers a really crucial question. Who belongs in his community? In other words, who belongs here? And there have been a lot of different assumptions about Jesus informed um, by errant ideas about Jesus in the media or well-intentioned or sometimes not well-intentioned teachers throughout history. And then, of course, there are the painful experiences we've had with faith communities who have missed Jesus' vision for community, and it's left scars in our hearts as to what we should expect from the church. And as a pastor... I've had plenty of conversations, not only with you in here, but with others outside of this community that come with all kinds of assumptions as to who, quote unquote, belongs here. And it could go, you know, any number of ways. You know, the people who really belong here look a certain way, smell a certain way, talk a certain way. They've never wrestled with that in their lives. They've never done that. And they surely don't continue to wrestle with that. And then sometimes the real painful space is that people end up saying something like, well, you know, once I kind of get this figured out, then and only then I'll be ready to join in what, what God's doing in his church. It's kind of this self-selecting out. And the idea that's so predominant there is that church or Jesus' community is only for some people. Some people. Now, the, 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 the damaging piece to that, too, is when somebody actually starts to find victory in some of those things outside of the life of the church and then they come into the church, they're sorely disappointed by the brokenness they still experience by all of us in here and feel jaded that the church should have been better. But it's driven by a misunderstanding on who Jesus' community is for. It's not just for some people. And as we are kind of as a downtown campus in this journey, we're going to be in a new building this year. And you saw the blueprints as you came in. Some of you are wondering what those were for. Those are the blueprints of our new space that we're going to be moving into here in the middle of the year. And as communities move places, sometimes they can lose their identity. And for us, we need to remember who has Jesus, Jesus called us to be? What kind of community is, is he creating us to be? And this is why we're on a journey to rediscover 
Jesus, the real Jesus, not just a Jesus we fabricate or a Jesus that makes us feel good, but a Jesus that is informed by those who walked, watched, and talked with Jesus face to face, and we get to look over their shoulder and through their hearts as to who this real Jesus is. And here's the good news in the midst of this journey of understanding Jesus's community. This is the good news. When Jesus creates community, it's available for everyone. Jesus creates community available for everyone. And when he does that, he challenges our expectations, he widens our boundaries, and he always makes us uncomfortable with who he includes. Always. But listen, listen, listen. If we hold on to Jesus' vision for community and who's involved and who's included, this is where we finally start to experience but a taste of what he's taught us to pray for, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, starting first with his people gathered in his name. Don't we want that? Don't we long for that? All right, well, let's explore that together. Look with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, beginning here in verse 12. And we find Jesus in an interesting space. You see, Jesus didn't come to convene a crowd, although this happens quite a bit. He came to create a community, and this is why we find Jesus taking a journey up a mountain and spending all night in prayer. Now, to my knowledge, this is the only place in the New Testament in Jesus' life where he spends, and we are told that he spends all night in prayer, the whole night. And after he spends this whole evening, this prayer vigil, he comes down and he calls together the 12 leaders of this community that he's cultivating, these 12 apostles, these emissaries, these sent ones. And we're meant, we're meant to, if we, if we know the history of how God has worked in the world, we're meant to now have an imagination and remember someone else who went up a mountain and came down. We are to think and to remember Moses, who went up the mountain, and when he came down, after meeting with God, came down and called together the 12 tribes, and he gave them Torah, right, the way, and what it means to be the people of God. And Jesus here is the new and better Moses. He's not throwing off the shackles of what God has done before, but now this new community which is birthed out of Israel is meant to be what Israel never was, is meant to fulfill what God intended his community to do and to be. And so you see people who are near and far who have come together, people you would expect and people you wouldn't expect, coming together to be healed, to be, to be made whole, to want something new, to see God and his community bring his kingdom come. And this is where we find Jesus begin to teach his second sermon and show what it means to be a part of this community. And really, he starts with, in this broader sermon, who belongs there. Let's look together at, at almost a Genesis. Luke 6, verses 20 through 23. In many ways, this is the Genesis to understanding his community. Sorry, I just had to... <laughs> You try, you know, here we go. Uh, Luke 6, verses 20 through 24. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. 
And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, this first section in the sermon where you hear this fourfold echo of blessed, 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 blessed is often called the Beatitudes. Now, if you look in your Bibles, there's even this little subtitle there in, you know, in bold, the Beatitudes for many of us in our Bibles. Where does that come from? That's really just the Latin origination of this word blessed, okay? The Latin, or Latin translation of the word blessed, blessed. And the word blessed is an interesting word. A lot of us think we understand that word, and frankly, I continually am diving into the depths of how rich this word is. You see, blessed carries with it the idea of the ones who experience God's favor, and really some of the best translations capture it as happy. This isn't some fleeting feeling that's here today, gone tomorrow. It's the enduring state of the good life, no matter the ups and downs. The Greeks use this word to describe the blissful existence of the gods. Here we go. There we go. There it is. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a particular group that is deeply blessed. Now, it's important to note also that these blessed ones, this word blessed is not a command, okay? It is a group of statements. And to be clear, not if-then statements, meaning if you do these things, then you will be blessed. Instead, it's describing people who are currently already happy, blessed. And who, who is it that he's describing? Really, we find an astounding statement here. Right off the gate, we find in Jesus' community, the out can be in. These outsiders suddenly find themselves included. And who are these outsiders? We see the poor first. And if you look across Luke's gospel account, the poor are those who have been marginalized or ostracized due to their economic status. We see the hungry, those who are longing for something to deeply satisfy their souls. We see the grief-stricken, those who are up all night weeping over the brokenness in their lives and over the brokenness of the world. And then we see the ostracized, those who experience abuse and pain and distance because of their association and the desire to pursue Jesus. These are the ones that no one really pursues to have a part of their community. These are the ones that are often marginalized, ignored, and forgotten. Actually, from all outside perspectives, these are the ones that are hopeless, that are needy. They're the ones that are last on your invite list to that great party you're trying to throw. These are the ones that, frankly, you would think are sometimes beyond God's blessing. This side of heaven... And yet, Jesus goes to clearly communicate that there is no human condition that is an obstacle to him experiencing or receiving or sending his blessing their way. And it's not as if Jesus is somehow naming these groups of people as if they exist somewhere. We need to understand in this rediscovery of Jesus how Jesus goes about his teaching. This is a helpful toolbox whenever you're coming across Jesus' teaching. Jesus is actually calling his disciples to look at the crowd, to see actually the people that are gathered, and to see the people that he's naming. You see, Jesus, whenever he teaches, he teaches both concretely and contextually. 
concretely and that he usually engages current events, situations, or the, 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 the context around him. For example, in the Passover meal, which we'll get to eventually. In the Passover meal, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. In this Passover meal, there's already bread, there's already juice, and there's these other elements that are a part of it and that come with a rich Jewish history. And Jesus uses the elements that are already a part of the normal Seder, the Passover meal, and he directs all of those elements to him. And he says, I, now every time you partake in this meal, do so in what? Remembrance of me. Very concrete, very tactile. But it's not just concrete and tactile. It's very contextual, very contextual. He's often attacking a particular assumption of the day. And one of the common assumptions of the day is that if you want to be a part of what God's doing or you want to know who's really on the inside of what God's doing, look at the wealthy. Because God's extended his blessing to them. Look at the satisfied. Because they clearly are the ones who have figured out how to work in God's world. Look at the ones who have an extraordinary reputation. Those are the ones that God is going to usher his kingdom in through. Those are the ones who belong to God's blessings. And God's blessings belong to them. But if you were to go back. In time and listen to Jesus teaching and to kind of look around at the crowd. You wouldn't see anybody really taking notes, which is interesting because he wasn't about information transfer. He was clearly communicating information, but his goal was personal transformation. And so he's gathering together these people near and far, the unexpected and the expected people, as we saw in the text from Tyre and Sidon, from these seacoast towns. You know who those are? Gentiles. These are hyperlinks to people who aren't Israelites. He's bringing together this diverse group. And he's saying, look, disciples, look at all those that are coming to be a part of what I'm doing. We have all these expectations who should be on the inside. But no circumstance, no external circumstance can keep me from including people from experiencing my blessing. Now, all this to say, there's been a lot of abuse of these Beatitudes, and, and part of that can be in glorifying um, some of these really hard states of existence. So sometimes we can glorify poverty or hunger or weeping or persecution and say, ah, oh, the real Christians are the ones who have chosen poverty, who cry all the time, who are always hungry, who are always being persecuted, when in reality, that's not what Jesus is seeking to communicate here. That may indeed be the case when we follow Jesus that those states do come upon us, to be clear. But now Jesus is not reversing the hierarchy such that those who are in poverty, those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are experiencing persecution can look down in arrogance, yes, in suffering, but in arrogance in those who have not had to experience that. It's not as if Jesus is saying, now you can be arrogant over here and you can look down your nose. No, 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 no. He's not trying to create a new hierarchy. Instead, Jesus is making a really clear point that no matter your circumstance, no matter where you find yourself, you are included if you want me and you can know blessing, which is extraordinarily radical. And this is how Jesus is meant to set up his community, an incredible availability to everyone, no matter your status, if you want Jesus. 
Now, this is where we kind of need to pause and kind of think about the history of the church because that sort of availability to all people has not really been the history of the church, has it? I mean, here we are in February, Black History Month, where we remember the black history as well as black church history. And yet the black church was born out of exclusion. Dr. and Pastor Brian Loritz in his book, Insider Outsider Tells, of a well-known story in the 1700s where an African-American gentleman goes into a church to pray. And the members, the white members of that church are so incensed that this gentleman sits in a whites-only section that they take him out of the church and they throw him into the streets of Philly. The African-American members of that church are rightfully appalled and what they do is they go to set up their own church which has become now known as the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME. The black church, some total, with its various denominations, was born out of the exclusion from the white church here in the United States. And as much as there is to repent and lament of that fact, the greatest and, and most deepest egregious reality is that it continues on today. But not just there. I mean, we could look across the church in the United States and we begin to see over and over again exclusion. We think about how the church in the United States had zeroed in most of its programming and the idolization of the nuclear family that has ostracized so many single brothers and sisters in our community where they feel like they have no place. We can think about our brothers and sisters in the LGBT community who are seeking to follow Jesus' sex ethic, but simultaneously longing to be a part of the church, but find themselves ostracized from the broader LGBT community because they're not living fully into, quote-unquote, their desires, but then simultaneously feel marginalization in the church. And then we could also talk about how the painful reality in the United States that so many Christians find themselves having a greater affinity to people who share their politics than people who share their faith. And so churches are torn apart by leaning into particular political parties or chasing after a particular candidate that will be here today, gone tomorrow, rather than serving our eternal king. And yet, here's the good news, folks. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity, brilliantly says that still, if you look across the world, Christianity is still the most diverse and most inclusive of all the world religions. It is the largest religion this world over. And so what that indicates is that there is not an error in who Jesus is and his message. Rather, there is deep fabrication and fragmentation within the followers of Jesus here in the United States and how we're carrying out his message and holding on to who we think he is. Hence the importance of this journey to rediscover the real Jesus and his vision for the church. So I want to ask this question of us. How can we grow in welcoming the out in? Both on Sunday and on Monday. How can we grow in welcoming the out in? Because the onus is on us here. The onus is on us. How can we be rejecting the cultural value systems of our day that continue to polarize and separate us and instead embrace Jesus' radical welcome? 
Well, I'm, the longer I study Jesus and learn about him and walk with him, the more I'm convinced that intentional, lasting relationships are the greatest catalyst to change. I see that both vertically, that if I want to become more Christ-like and grow in Christ-likeness, this happens with my intimacy and walking with Jesus personally, that relationship. The same is true horizontally. We can talk a lot about a lot of different ways in which we can be more welcoming, but one of the crucial aspects is having lasting, intentional, diverse relationships that cost and also give great gifts to us. You know, it's interesting that when you look at Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, before you get to these blesseds, it's not an accident that Jesus includes, he doesn't always give modifiers to the various apostles, but do you notice that it's how fascinating it is that he tells us about Simon the Zealot? And then earlier we met Matthew, who's also called Levi, who's a tax collector, and they're in the same close cohort together. Now, I want to be very clear. Simon the Zealot um, was someone who was anti-government. Matthew or Levi, this tax collector, was pro-big government, all right? That's basically the way you could describe this. If you want to think of it this way, Simon is like this hardcore right-wing guy who wants to limit any of the state's control in your life. Matthew is a hard left-wing guy who's looking to kind of, and he spent his whole life up to this point, expanding the state's control. And, and frankly, nowhere is this more explicit than if you go to Matthew's gospel account when he's talking about this. And, and these guys, it's not like they both give up their convictions and they both enter into this centrist view. It's not like Simon figured out he was wrong and he went over to Matthew's side and Matthew figured out he was wrong and went over to, you know, Simon's side. No, what we actually see there's no hint that they change their political viewpoints. But they still consider themselves and are a part of this family. And they figure out that in the midst of their difference, the one that brings them together is Jesus. And over time, they learn to love one another. Which is why I think Jesus kept having to say again and again, you want to know if you're, you're mine? If you want the world to know if you're mine? It's how you love one another. With a zealot and the tax collector in the same community. And it was this foundation, this radical welcoming that brought together people who didn't have to now see everything eye to eye, but had to understand who is the true king that brought them together. It was this radical foundation that opened up a radical welcoming in the early church. And this is how God opened up the doors to communicate that no matter your circumstance, you can belong in my community and what I'm doing in the world. So what are those relationships in your life? And to be clear, those aren't relationships where you're always the host, inviting over the guest for dinner, but we mean deep, meaningful relationships where you're actually starting to define the menu together. It's a different place to be in relationship over time. Now, there's an interesting twist here Matthew, if you go to Matthew's account, he gives what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Here, this is often called the Sermon on the Plain. People say, ah, there's some distinction here. Why is that? Well, 
Rabbis in the first century would often give their teachings in multiple locations. And actually, this is kind of like his keynote address, his stump speech. So just because we find distinction doesn't mean we have contradiction, but because Jesus might be zeroing in on specific goals here and how. So when we look at this, we find an interesting twist in Luke's account where he zeroes in on these woes, okay? Look with me here in chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So in contrast to the blessings, we find this woe, and it's an onomatopoeia. Do you remember that from grammar, you know, onomatopoeia, it's, it sounds the way it's, spe- like the way it's described here. So it's something that's, whoa, it's something you would yell in the midst of a lament and a funeral dirge. And it communicates both condemnation and pity. Condemnation and pity. Where on the outside, these folks, the rich, the full, the laughing, The folks with a really good reputation, they look like they've got it all together. They're the ones who are living the good life, experiencing the blessed enjoyment of the gods. But in reality, their lives end in ruin. You see this amazing reversal happening here, where the rich, according to the gospel account of Luke, isn't just anybody with mass amounts of resources. It's the rich who have kept all those resources only to comfort themselves at the, the, the ignoring of the needy. The full are those who are completely satisfied with the status quo. The, the laughing here, this particular word, is a boastful, ridiculing laughter. And the people who have an amazing reputation are the people who are never willing to rock the boat. They just want to say what people want to hear. And this is what's fascinating. In Jesus' community, the in can be out. So in Jesus' community, the outsiders can be included in. But also in Jesus' community, the ones that you would naturally think are on the inside can actually be out. And and I want to be very clear, in the same way we don't baptize poverty as now this more holy estate, surely Jesus is not demonizing all the wealthy, because it actually takes a moment to just scan the scriptures to find people with significant means, as well as people in my own life and here in this church who are passionate about Jesus and pursuing his ends and glorifying him, exuding generosity. You see, it's never so simple as just saying, well, now I'm in the in crowd so I can look down my noses at these other people, the rich. They're clearly out. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. It's going back to the very same point, but he's looking at it from a slightly different angle as to who is included. It doesn't matter at your external circumstances. It matters as to whether or not you are chasing after me. In the first century, when everybody thought the wealthy and the people who had their lives together, they were all clean cut, were the ones in the in-group, the ones that actually belonged to God's community, the ones that God would use to bring in his kingdom. Jesus says, maybe not. 
one of my favorite scholars and someone who's been instrumental in kind of the DNA at Christ Community from the beginning is Dallas Willard. And he has an extraordinary book called The Divine Conspiracy, where he does some really good exegesis and navigating how Jesus teaches in this particular text. And he says, Jesus teaches us that we cannot identify who has it, who is in with God, who is blessed by looking at exteriors of any sort. That is a matter of the heart. And we start stepping into judgmentalism when we think it's about these external markers that will slowly erode society, destroy the community, and create a Pharisaism either of the right or the left, depending on who's at the top of your quote-unquote hierarchy. Rather, Jesus is saying, listen, listen, listen. No matter who you are, throw off what you think are the normal people who are in just because of their external circumstances. Throw off who you think are normally the people who are out because of their external circumstances. For me, it has to do with what they do with me. And that will shape their lives eventually. But who's invited? I'm creating a community that is available for everyone. And it has nothing to do with circumstances. So let's go back to that initial question. Who belongs here? Who belongs here? Right? How, how do we remember this? How, what sort of expectations should we have for the people who come in these doors, for us ourselves and belonging to this community? What is abundantly clear from Jesus is that it, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your race, no matter your culture, no matter your gender, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether your, phys your physique, you know, lines up with the models of GQ and Vogue, whether you're a little overweight or scrawny, scrawny, you know, or whether you're young or young at heart. It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't matter whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have kids, whether you don't have kids whether you're sexually frustrated, whether you experience same-sex attraction. It doesn't matter whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you're a leader of a large organization or you're unemployed or underemployed, whether you're divorced, whether you've been incarcerated, whether you have a record. It doesn't matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you, no matter whether you're depressed, whether you're tired, whether you're excited. The doors are open. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that Jesus wants you. And the reason he wants you is because he wants you. And really, that's it. And the only, only prerequisite, prerequisite to belong to this community is wanting him and embracing those he's brought around him. And I'll even say this. Maybe you're in a spiritual part of your journey where you're thinking, I don't even know if I want him yet. Well, if you want to want him, that's a great first step. If you want to want him, God, I want to want you. That's a great space. Because listen, none of those other factors matter. And if you're just willing to chase after Jesus and to love those that he's brought around him, you will begin to see his kingdom life break into yours. And you want to know how I know? Because of what he's done to secure it. 
He's gone to extraordinary lengths, not to convene a crowd, but to create a community. And that community was birthed as well as shaped at the cross, where Jesus became an outsider in order to invite us in, where Jesus took on our condemnation and became pitiable so that we might be included, where Jesus took on our woes so that we might know the blessed life of God. And he did that for us. And I mean that very literally for us. Not just have this individual walk with just me and Jesus. I'll do what I want because I know I'm good with Jesus. No, but to embrace those that he has brought around him, that he is bringing on a journey with him. And as we'll continue through this community journey here in Jesus's second sermon does have a lot to say about community dynamics and boundaries and how we engage one another to be sure. But to enter in, the only thing is to want the one who wants you because he wants you and he died for you. And then three days later, rose again. And then 40 days later, ascended to the right hand of the God the Father to send his spirit to us to empower us to be a community of one baptism, of one Lord, of one church, to be unified together and caring for one another to carry out his purposes. And when you really start thinking about that, you ask a question that Dietrich Bonhoeffer asks. This 20th century theologian and pastor who died at the hands of the Nazi regime. In his book, Cost of Discipleship, he writes, having reached the end of the Beatitudes, we naturally ask if there is any place on this earth for the community which they describe. Clearly, there's one place and only one, and that is where the poorest, meekest, and most surely tried of all men is to be found on the cross at Golgotha. The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. With him, it has lost all, and with him, it has found all. Let's be that kind of community. A community available for you, a community available for me, a community available for everyone. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that in your divine wisdom, you have put within the architecture of this community an extraordinary welcome so that when we begin to experience life with you, you do form us into deeper Christ-likeness. And so, God, if there are those here in this moment, right here, right now, who have yet to begin to follow Jesus because of any sort of internal barriers or a feeling as if Jesus is for a particular kind of person, God, may you open the doors of their heart. Holy Spirit, may you free them to surrender their lives to you knowing that you want them because you want them. And if you are here and you've been holding back from surrendering to Jesus because you didn't know if you were good enough or ever be accepted or if Jesus really wanted anything to do with you, use this as a time now to surrender your life to him. It's as simple as saying, God, I have sinned. I am sorry, please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Thank you for welcoming me in. I want to be your child. In his name, amen. It's as simple as that. And God, I pray for those who are here who have been holding back from plugging into a church community, the community that you're desiring to create because of any number of factors feeling like they don't fit in enough or they don't belong. God, may they hear this vision of Jesus and feel the unbelievable, radical welcome to belong here and help us as a church community to have more open arms, to lay down our barriers 
that have been more culturally formed than Christ formed, that we might be a community more in line with your vision because that's where deeper life happens, where transformation happens, and where joy resides. That's our longing, God. Help us, Holy Spirit, who is both within us and among us, shape us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.